Well, so nice to see all of you on a very beautiful spring Wednesday night. So glad to have you with us, especially if you are visiting with us tonight. You know, I never know what to expect from you people. Uh, you know, I, um, I, I was, for the, I've probably officiated communion, I don't know, 400 times, 500 times since I've been here. That's the first time you stood up during uh, the second part and had knelt down. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> so thanks for keeping me on my toes. It is a uh, privilege and a, and a delight uh, to introduce you to, or maybe reintroduce you, uh, to the Reverend Canon Dr. Justin Holcomb. He is as impressive as his title suggests. He is... Um, he has been working for several years in the Diocese of Central Florida as the canon for vocations. Uh, he recently uh, got a, um, a, a, a promotion of duties, uh, on, apparently only, uh, but a promotion of duties. Uh, he, is the interim, uh, uh, he is the interim canon to the ordinary, and the bishop went on sabbatical. So he's kind of the interim bishop, too, so, of Central Florida. Now, that's, that, we'll edit that part out of the recording. So, uh, just, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, well, it, it, um, well, it is such, so thank you so much for driving all the way up here from Orlando to be with us uh, tonight. You can come on up. So, the question that I've asked uh, Dr. Holcomb, um, Justin, to, uh, to answer tonight is, did Jesus really rise from the dead? It's an important question. I'm sure he's going to uh, go over with you why it's such an important question, uh, but uh, the the uh, the truth is, lots of you know that uh, know that he di- he died and he rose from the dead. But dead people don't rise, and so whether you have problems with the resurrection or you know somebody who has problems with the re- uh, with the resurrection, this is your night. So I am so glad that you're here. I'm going to stop talking now, and I will give you this microphone. Handover of power. That's it. Thank you. You can talk. You really have like uh, 50, uh, 58 minutes that you can, you can go. So. It's party time. You ready? Yes. Thank you. So, yeah, you got it. Thank you, Father Gibbs, on uh, the invitation to be here again. I was here last year. And we talked about Romans 7. I told you creepy stories about serial killers. Um, today is different. It's uh, not as creepy. Uh, <laughs> And depressing. But thank you very much for the invitation. I, it, um, things are hectic in the diocese, being the two-barreled canon with a bishop. Uh, he's, he's not only on sabbatical, but he's on the other side of the globe. Um, and uh, so uh, I was looking forward to being with people who don't know me that well and don't expect anything of me except... <laughs> To talk about the hope of the resurrection and eat really good dinner. <laughs> so, we, we've, and we've already, we already had the Eucharist, so I'm feeling great. So, everything's downhill from there. Um, here's my plan for the evening. Uh, since we do have so much time, I'd like to go over because you don't care if you get done early. And I'm going to go for, I don't know, 30 minutes or so, maybe 40, but I want to have time for QA to unpack it. That's where some of the magic of this is, is what are you thinking about? Now, to the question, hopefully you believe in the resurrection because that's kind of required for being Christian. Um, so uh, that's the key. And, but the, the reason it's so important is because even if you are convinced of the resurrection, there are plenty of people who think you are crazy for believing in the resurrection. And let me just start off by telling you why it was so important to me. Um, I teach apologetics, which is the proof in defending of the Christian faith for seminaries. And uh, so this topic is near and dear um, academically to me, but also personally. When I was finishing my PhD in theology at Emory, I'd already been to Bible college and seminary, and I was doing theology and comparative religion. So I was with very devout uh, one of my friends was a Southern Baptist who converted to Islam. Uh, so he was studying the Quran and Islam. Another was a very devout Hindu from the Brahmin class, the priesthood class in India, from India, very devout Hindu, and a, uh, uh, an Episcopalian who was also a Buddhist. They called themselves um, 
Budapalians. Um, that was less disturbed about that. That just seemed like par for the course. Uh, but, but seeing so many devout people who were as devout about their faith as I was about Jesus Christ was unnerving. And it just it, it caused me to have some questions. Not a, I just, I, 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 my certainty and my confidence was less. And so I went to my advisor and I said, hey, all of this studying is um, wonderful, but it's just raising some more questions. I said, did you, did you ever have the swirl or the doubt happen because of what you're studying? And he said, oh, yeah, you're asking the pearl of great, the, the pearl of great price question, aren't you? And I said, uh, yeah, I am. <laughs> Is there something worth selling everything for? And he said, oh, yeah. And we, we were at a... We were at a, we were at a, uh, a Apparently, I said something like Siri to it. Um, my phone's talking back to me. We, we, were, we were at a pub just having chips and beer. And so it was a low-key conversation. And he said, yeah, I got one word for you. It fixes everything. Resurrection. He said, just go back and study the resurrection. And uh, he wasn't being trite at all. He was actually, the, the gravitas of what he said, the weight of it, was wonderful for me. And then he, expand, he explained a little bit more. He said, if Jesus really rose from the dead, he's who he says he was. And uh, the fact that the guy who rose from the dead gives you hope for death, gives you hope for who he is as the Messiah and Savior, also establishes the fact of the legitimacy of the Bible. Because his doctrine of Scripture, if, if someone raises from the dead, basically whatever they say gets to go. <laughs> and a lot of things fall. And if you play dominoes, the whole key is that you want to have one domino that knocks over all of the other ones. And he said, the resurrection is the domino for, for me. It might not be for you, but it is for me. And so as I studied that, it, was, it gave me great confidence in the Christian faith, but it also gave me great emotional, spiritual hope at the same time. Intellectual confidence and spiritual, emotional hope together. That's just my experience of the importance of studying resurrection. But let me dive into some other reasons why. Um, the Apostle Paul gives us some in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. You cannot get more intense. Paul is key on using strong language. He's not afraid of that, but he uses a lot of strong language of um, your preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. There's a lot riding on resurrection. So this isn't just a head trip of, oh, resurrection. This is both for academic evangelistic purposes for you, if needed, or for those around you, but also emotional and spiritual preparation for Holy Week and Easter of how much is riding on resurrection. So it'll be a little bit of a celebration of it. One option that we don't have as Christians, according to the Nicene Creed, is that the resurrection is just a metaphor. It's, it's not just a, uh, a powerful metaphor to describe spiritual life. Um, that's how some people have kind of gotten away from it. It is absolutely central. Resurrection is central to the Christian faith. Jesus even predicted his resurrection a few times. In Matthew 17, he says this, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. Luke 9, 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Does the same thing on Luke 18. This is a cop, Jesus. It wasn't just some... Um, um, wasn't his followers going, well, let's come up with a good story. It was on the lips of Jesus predicting his own death and resurrection. So we can come back to the importance of resurrection, um, but I want to kind of start diving into some of the, the, the texture of resurrection. It's important for us to, to lay the groundwork that Jesus' followers gave up hope when he died. They weren't expecting this. They were dull, like us. We have to hear things many times before we even believe it or even catch it. I mean, Jesus had been saying, I'm going to suffer and die, and, and they were still kind of clueless to this when it happened. But they lost hope. Unlike pagan religions in the ancient world, 
Jews, Judaism, had a belief in the bodily resurrection. They had a category for resurrection, but it was a resurrection that would happen at the end of time. Jews believed in a resurrection. It was a general resurrection when everything's done and God's going to judge the world. So they had the category of resurrection. They just weren't expecting it to happen to an individual before the end of time. So even the idea of a resurrection was not expected at all. So there was no expectation in Jesus' culture that one man would be resurrected as a precursor to the general resurrection. And the resurrection is, has been called the central miracle of Jesus' life and ministry. He did plenty of other ones, but rising from the dead trumps all the rest. It paves the way for us and all others who trust in him to look forward to the resurrection that is patterned after his. The Apostle Paul says this, In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and 21. So let's look at some evidence. That's all of the importance. It's a big deal. It's, you know, that's why Easter is going to be full. This is the biggest Sunday that we have is Easter Sunday. It's game day. It's Super Bowl Sunday. I mean, this is it. It's the World Series. It's the Super Bowl. Whatever sports analogy you want to use. It's the NCAA championship. Taught at UVA, so I was a happy guy on Monday. Um, <laughs> Okay, so some of the evidence for why we should believe in it. One, one big idea is that we have historically credible accounts of Scripture. The issue is whether the gospel narratives are historically credible accounts of history or is it just propagating myths. And so the resurrection is defended by showing that the Scriptures are authentic, meaning that they were written by the authors who claimed them, so the New Testament is authentic. The authors who say, Paul wrote the letters from Paul, and then uh, Matthew wrote Matthew, John wrote John, and John wrote Revelation in 1st and 2nd and 3rd John. So it's authentic that we're, we're pretty confident that the people who are attributed to have write, write, writing those letters and Gospels and other passages actually wrote them. Uh, two, that they are pure so authentic, and they are pure, that they were not changed from their original form. Um, there, are, uh, there are so many thousands of manuscripts. The more manuscripts we find, the more assurance we have at the original text that it would have been there and what is there. Every time we find a new text, it actually enforces and strengthens the credibility of the biblical text. So archaeology is actually a gift. Something that's fun about apologetics and archaeology, every time so far, every time archaeology has said, hey, you know what? We think the Bible got it wrong on this one. And then they do more study, they go, oh, nope, that's not the case. The Bible was right. One of my favorite ones is, uh, I don't remember the specifics of it, but there was a coin. The, the Bible in Acts, it says that a certain emperor uh, reigned from a certain time. And so the dating of that emperor would have been, let's just say for illustration's sake, 55 to 60 AD. That's what the Bible says. They found that, and then all the archaeologists said, no, no, that person didn't reign from 55 to 60. That person reigned from 58 to 60. They did not start that early. The Bible's wrong. And then guess what they found? A coin with the emperor's face on it with indications of dating of when the emperor... So every time something pops up from archaeology, it actually reestablishes the specific facts that the Bible actually talks about. It's amazing to watch. It's, it's fun to see. Every time the Bible's in question, it stands up to the question and actually uh, dismisses the challenge to it. So it's authentic, it's pure, that no one corrupted the text. People didn't rewrite stuff into it. Um, and then third it is reliable that the apostles were not deceived and they weren't deceivers. And so the, the Bible's authentic, pure, and reliable. Bart Ehrman, Bart Ehrman is a critic. He's a New Testament scholar who is very skeptical. He's written books misquoting Jesus, that he's very critical of the reliability of the New Testament. He even says that, he says, the resurrection is said to be the first explanation for the available data. 
the notorious New Testament critic Ehrman says, quote, we can say with some confidence that some of his disciples claim to have seen Jesus alive. He's just going by the facts. We can say with confidence that the disciples claim to have seen Jesus alive. And so instead of questioning the historical fact of the events of the New Testament, Ehrman says that the historian cannot say whether God was the supernatural cause of what happened, but something happened. So, I mean, he's a skeptic who doesn't want to say too much, and even he says something happened. There's a New Testament scholar. His name is Pinchas Lapid. He's a Jewish New Testament scholar. He believes that Jesus rose from the dead. And he's a devout Jew, okay? A Jewish New Testament scholar who believes that Jesus rose from the dead. He just says that God raised Jesus, the prophet, from the dead to show that Jesus was a faithful prophet. He's not the Messiah, but he was a faithful prophet. So I love the fact that so you have a critical New Testament scholar, Bart Ehrman, who says pretty clear that the disciples believe Jesus rose from the dead. That's not up for question. A Jewish New Testament scholar says Jesus rose from the dead. It doesn't mean he's the Messiah, though. <laughs> but you have all these critics and non-believers even saying he rose from the dead. I love that kind of stuff. Um, it's, I don't remember the name of the book by Pinchas Lapid, but it is, uh, it's just fascinating to see all of his arguments for why he believes in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's, that's why the Bible's credible. So the credibility of the Bible's one, we can talk about that during our Q&A. Let's, uh, let's look at the reality that Jesus' tomb is actually empty. Uh, one of the best defenses is that the tomb is empty and people need to give an explanation for the tomb. Um, one of the easiest parts of the resurrection data to establish is the fact of the empty tomb. The location of Jesus' burial was known to those in Jerusalem. It was not a secret. Uh, it would have been very unlikely that they would have believed uh, the apostles preaching about the resurrection if there wasn't an empty tomb. All they had to do was go, hold on a second, guys. Let's go check out the tomb and then walk over to the tomb and point to the tomb. It was the easiest way to discredit the preaching that Jesus rose from the dead. So, but nobody, nobody ever went to the tomb because it was clear that the tomb was empty. So the question is, how is it empty? <laughs> Why is there the claim that there's an empty tomb? Before we look at that, um, uh, it, it's also, it, it was, that was the fact that the tomb was empty was established by numerous witnesses also. The key witnesses were women. The women were not considered at this time uh, reliable witnesses in first century Jewish culture. So it would have been foolish for New Testament authors to have fictionally constructed a mythic account involving women as the establishing witnesses in order to gain credibility. That would have gone against the cultural norms. And so what's happening is, is that's, a, that's a, a hint of evidence of the truthfulness that the New Testament was writing what actually happened, not what they wanted to say. Matthew 28, 11 through 15 talks about a myth that the Jews were spreading about the body of Christ. Some Jews were saying that the disciples must have stolen the body. As soon as there was word of a resurrection, some of the Jewish believers, Jews said, the disciples stole the body. You know what they weren't saying was the body's still in the tomb. They were saying, okay, clearly the body's gone. What happened to it? So the, that, the, the point of bringing this up is that the Jews did not deny the empty tomb. They just sought an alternative explanation to the resurrection. And so the emptiness of the tomb is a widely historical fact. Christian apologist William Lane Craig writes this, in a bibliographical survey of over 2,200 publications on the resurrection in English, French, and German since 1975, Habermas, another Christian apologist, found that 75% of scholars accepted the historicity of the discovery of Jesus' empty tomb. Vast majority of scholars say the tomb is clearly empty. So what's the explanation? Ours is that he rose from the dead. 
that actually is the best explanation for the fact that the tomb is empty. There are some other theories. Let's go through them pretty quickly. Uh, the first is the conspiracy theory. And this, uh, some have advanced this hypothesis which says that the disciples stole the body of Christ and then continued to lie about his appearances to them. And so put bluntly, on this account, the resurrection is a hoax uh, developed by the, um, the apostles. Now, not very many people actually believe this one uh, in modern scholarship for a few reasons. This hypothesis does not account for the fact that the disciples actually believed in the resurrection. It's highly unlikely that all of the disciples would have been willing to die horrible deaths for a hoax that they knew was not true. I mean, do you, we, we, I, I serve at the cathedral in Orlando, and we have these pillars. We have 12 of them. It's really nice. And each one is for one of the disciples. And then they have a little shield. And my daughters are walking through church, and they're 8 and 10. And they'll look up and be like, what's that shield for? Why is there a saw? Like, oh, that's for the one that was sawed in half. Why are there knives over there? I'm like, oh, that was for the one that got filleted. Why is there an upside-down cross over there? Oh, that was the guy who got crucified upside down. And I have to go through and explain. They're like, good grief. This is gruesome. <laughs> like, all these images of just horrible ways of dying around our church. Yes. Um, why in the world would they create a hoax and then no one at any point said, stop with the pain? As a matter of fact, they went to their death gladly thinking it was an honor to die for this message. So that's one reason why the hoax doesn't make sense. Second, it's unlikely that the idea of resurrection would have even entered their minds uh, unless it was actually true. One scholar writes this, if your favorite Messiah got himself crucified, then you either went home or you got yourself a new Messiah. But the idea of stealing Jesus' corpse and saying that God raised him from the dead is hardly one that would have entered the minds of the disciples. That, they weren't even planning on it at resurrection. Why, why would they make up some weird idea that no one was even thinking about? They didn't have the category of resurrection. After he died, they went home bummed out because they didn't think he was going to raise from the dead. Third, this hypothesis can't deal with the post-resurrection appearances. He appeared to 500 people. Not one or two, but 500. So if they stole his body, and you saw the movie Weekend at Bernie's, remember that one back in the day where they kind of propped up Bernie for a few days and took him around for a weekend? They would have had to have done that. They would have had to like walk around with Jesus, kind of flopping around dead with rigor mortis or something. It doesn't make any sense. So the hoax, it falls apart on three accounts. Or my, this is my... Um, I'm saying this, I'm trying not to sound condescending, okay? Because <laughs> um, I, I get that some people would argue for these, uh, but this one's my favorite one. The apparent death. And this hypothesis is, says that it tries to explain away the resurrection by saying, well, he didn't raise from the dead because he didn't die. It was an apparent death. And this was defended by um, Frederick Schleiermacher, uh, who was a theologian a few centuries ago. And he said that Jesus was not completely dead when he was removed from the cross. Once in the tomb, when it was cooler, he revived and escaped and then convinced uh, his disciples of his resurrection. And uh, it's, this one falls apart for a few reasons. One, so imagine, I mean, again, you have, to, you have to try on each idea and go, okay, does Jesus raising from the dead make the most sense? Okay. Now, let's just pause for a second. You do realize um, that we are making a pretty spectacular claim. I mean, we're, we're basing our entire life on the miracle that he rose from the dead. We don't have any reason except for the authority of the Bible and the evidence to believe. It's not like we've seen resurrections in other places. This is a particular, individual, unbelievable miracle that we are banking our life on. We're facing death in the hope of this one miracle. We have people who have died that we hope to see again, and our hope is based on this miracle. 
We have darkness that tries to encompass us, and our only hope in that darkness to hold on is because of this miracle. And non-Christians aren't crazy when they go, that's, that's hard to believe, that someone rose from the dead. So while I'm saying that this one's my favorite one, kind of making fun of it, let's be honest that we're making some pretty spectacular claims that God became a human, took on the human form, and then died and then rose again for us who were rebellious toward him. <laughs> so it's a spectacular claim, and non-believers aren't crazy for asking their questions. Okay, so we have to try on, did resurrection, does that explain what we're looking at? Does a hoax make sense? Hope doesn't really, hoax doesn't really make sense. Maybe he didn't really die. Well, let's explore the possibilities. One, it's very unlikely that a half-dead man would have been capable of even getting up to walk, much, much less move an enormous stone and overpower Roman guards and flee from sight. So Jesus, after he got pummeled to near death, I moved this weekend, okay? I picked up some boxes. I moved my house to another house, and I had movers. And I could barely get up on Monday. And I'm not that much older than Jesus. I'm 45, okay? My knees were sore. I didn't carry a cross. I didn't get whipped. I didn't get beat up. I wasn't starved to death. I wasn't mocked. I didn't almost bleed out based on the whipping and then have nails pierce my hands and feet. And the claim is that he kind of came to and then pushed an enormous stone out of the way, beat up some guards, and then ran away. It's unbelievable. So this story also doesn't account for the disciples attributing resurrection to Jesus. Because if they had seen him after he was revived, they would have thought, great, you didn't die. We thought you died. We're, this is great news. Thank God that you didn't die. That they, wouldn't have, they would have not have said, no, he rose from the dead. They would have said, no, he revived. Their message was not, he revived. He really is the Messiah. It was, he came back from the dead. He's a different Messiah than we thought he was. Third, it's foolish to think that the Romans who perfected the art of torturing and killing people would have let this one slip through the cracks without ensuring that he was dead. They killed thousands of people. They were masterful at, at causing pain and dragging that pain out for days. So you, you would really just, it was mostly about suffering because the whole point was terror. You wanted to create terror so other people would say, I don't want that to happen. And Jesus' uh, situation had some political ramifications. That's why he kept on getting tossed from this person to this person. And this is why they stabbed him in the chest to make sure that he was dead. They didn't break his legs because they were so convinced he was dead. They were professional executioners. They knew exactly what they were doing. They weren't letting this one slip through the cracks. Last, Given the physical torture described in the gospel accounts, it's unlikely that Jesus would have even survived just before the nailing. They, could have, they, could, they didn't even have to nail him. They probably could just let him just lay there and he would have bled to death most likely because it's so gruesome what actually happens in crucifixion. So hoax doesn't make sense. Apparent death doesn't give an account of all the other facts. Third option is the wrong tomb. Um, this is a hypothesis that suggests that the women got lost on their way to the empty tomb and uh, accidentally stumbled upon a caretaker at the empty tomb. And when the caretaker said that Jesus is not here, the women were so disoriented that they fled and their story later developed into a resurrection myth. So the wrong, they accidentally went to the wrong tomb and... They just got the story wrong and started a whole big mess about Jesus raising from the dead. Um, but this one doesn't explain his resurrection appearances again. It is spurious to think that such a simplistic mistake would have led first century Jews to think a resurrection happened. They would have just said, oh, wrong tomb? Let's go to the right tomb. They, they could have solved that one really easily. In light of the early evidence that is available concerning the location of Jesus' tomb, 
it is impossible that the women would have confused its location. And then last, this uh, emphasis, um, this hypothesis emphasizes that the caretaker of the tomb said that Jesus was not there, but it passes over his next phrase. He's not here, period. He is risen. <laughs> so the, what was given to the women who were there is he's not here, it was, he's not here because he's risen from the dead. That's what was actually uh, stated to them. So it overlooks just the basics of it. Last one is the displaced body. And this, this one's been advanced as the hypothesis that Joseph of Arimathea placed Jesus' body in his own tomb, but later moved it to the criminal's graveyard. And so the disciples just weren't aware that Jesus' body had been moved and therefore wrongly inferred that he'd risen from the dead. And this theory can account for post-resurrection appearances, and we're going to look at those in just a second, and the origin of the Christian faith. It is uncertain why Joseph would have not corrected everyone's error. And been, I, mean, imagine, I mean, imagine if you're Joseph of Arimathea, and you're like, all you're trying to do is you're, you're trying to honor Jesus, and so you put him in your tomb, and then you realize, well, I don't, you know, I'll just move him real quick. And then in between that time, there's like the, you start hearing this brouhaha of like, Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. And everyone starts talking about Jesus raising from the dead. And how awkward is that for him to be like, sorry guys, I moved the body. <laughs> That's on me. You know, That's all he had to do as opposed to the embarrassment. I mean, he was trying to honor his Lord instead of embarrassing his Lord and his followers to say, I mean, all he had to say was, nope, his body's right here. It would have caused, it would have made things a lot easier. If uh, his, he had people dying over the resurrection, he could have easily uh, dealt with that one. Um, and a criminal's graveyard, by the way, would have been close to the resurrection site, so it would have made little sense why they would have simply buried Jesus there in the first place. They could have gone from cross to right there where a criminal graveyard would be instead of going all the way to where they ended up going for Joseph at Arimathea's tomb. Last two pieces of evidence are the post-resurrection appearances. So those are the explanations for the empty tomb. The Bible's reliable, credible, it's authentic, pure, and historically reliable. The other explanations don't give an account for all of the facts the way that resurrection does. The last piece is that there were 500 people. 1 Corinthians 5, 3 through 8 says that there were 500 people. First he appeared to Cephas, and then to the 12, then to 500 people at once. James, all the apostles, and finally to Paul himself. In 1 Corinthians, an authentic letter composed by a man acquainted with the first disciples actually claims that people saw Jesus after his death. And so we have to, so the, uh, because of the specificity of the list that Paul puts forward, it is fairly indisputable that Jesus actually appeared to the people that Paul mentions. That would have been the riskiest thing for Paul to do. It's like when, uh, uh, when I was a kid, my dad wanted me to uh, pour my milk into a cup and not just drink it out of the carton. Really simple request, but I was just rebel. I would just disobey to disobey. And I don't know what my problem was. Well, I still have that problem, but um, I just have a more sophisticated with it. Um, so I, we were watching TV, I was like, hey, I'm going to get some milk real quick. I went in there, chugged it from the carton, put it back in. And uh, he came back and he said, you drink out of the carton? I said, nope. He said, you poured it in a glass? Because I didn't hear anything. I said, yep. Did you put it in the sink? Yep. Did you wash it? Nope. He said, just all he had to do was get up and walk to the kitchen. He looked at it and said, why are you lying to me? I mean, it's easy to, it was easy for him to, disprove my lie. For Paul to say, to write a letter and say he appeared to these people and to 500 and almost all of them are still alive. When he says all of them are still alive, he's saying, go ask them. Like, you know who these people are. That would have been the easiest thing to disprove. All the readers of 1 Corinthians had to do was go, fine, I will go ask them. And every time that someone was asked, there were 500 people who Jesus appeared to who were witnesses 
of his resurrection. Um, very few scholars um, argue that on different occasions, different people group, pe- groups of people had experiences of seeing Jesus. Uh, even the most skeptical ones say, yep, yeah, we're not sure how to actually deal with this. Perhaps it was a hallucination. But there's no such thing ever recorded in history of a mass hallucination of 500 people. Actually, if people, if people, N.T. Wright says, um, a post-mortem appearance in the ancient world would have been evidence that the person was actually dead, not still alive, because they would have thought that it was a ghost or something. They wouldn't have thought, oh, he rose from the dead, and be like, oh, I guess his spirit showed up, and now it's floating around somewhere else. It doesn't actually prove a resurrection. But in, the only alternative is a mass hallucination. Well, hallucinations usually happen with one person who goes, did you see the monkeys on the sign? You go, no, you're, that was my uncle, by the way. We were driving, he was delirious from driving for like 24 hours straight. I probably, he probably should have just stopped. And he was like, ooh, I think I'm tired. Was there a monkey on that speed sign? I said, no, there was not. Hallucinations usually are discredited by one or two people, not a mass of 500. The last piece of evidence, and we will shut it down for Q&A and discussion, is the origin of the Christian faith. I already hinted toward this about you know, the shields of the apostles. But it's the apostles and it's the other witnesses that actually, the fact that Christianity started and grew is evidence of the resurrection. Um, William Lane Craig says this, even skeptical New Testament scholars admit that the earliest disciples at least believed that Jesus had been raised from the dead. For Jews, the Messiah was figured was viewed as a figure who was to be triumphant and rule on David's throne, not a figure that would be crucified and then die. The resurrection undid what the disciples saw as a catastrophe. What we know is it was actually the plan of God, but they thought it was a catastrophe. The Messiah who had died was now risen. The resurrection validated and verified the claims that Jesus made about his own identity. If Jesus rose from the dead, he is who he says he is. And a few other things follow on this, and we'll end with that. The the origin of the Christian faith rests solely on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Um, And there's no better plausible explanation and alternative for this. Quote, Even if we grant, for the sake of argument, that the tomb was somehow emptied and the disciples saw hallucinations, uh, suppositions which we now know to be false anyway, the origin of the belief in Jesus' resurrection still cannot be plausibly explained. So I want to end with the pastoral um, application for us on this. Uh, There's a few things about resurrection that I want to drive home and then we're going to talk. Robert Louis Stevenson wrote Treasure Island, had a way with words as a kid. Um, when he was, I think he was nine, his house with his parents was up on a hill. And they looked down into the valley, and night was falling, and he was staring out the window. And his parents said, Robert, what are you doing? Like, come, come over to dinner. Come by the fire. He said, no, I'm watching this light, lamp lighter. So okay. He said, he's punching holes in the darkness. So, I mean, just away with words as a kid. Uh, what a cool way to describe lighting a lamp, but punching holes in the darkness. That's the resurrection. The resurrection is God punching holes in the darkness of what sin has done to his world. It's punching holes in the darkness of the guilt and shame of our sin. It's punching holes in the darkness of the guilt and shame of the sin done against us. So this is Jesus dealing with the darkness that has overshadowed his creation. And he's peeling back the fingers of Satan off of the world and saying, mine. So he's punching holes in the darkness. That's what's so significant about the resurrection. Not just that it makes us feel better about life and hope. It does. There's a reason it's white and it's bright and it's colorful because that signals hope in, uh, in, in all of that stuff, which is great, but there's even more to it. Um, so he is punching holes in the darkness. Um, Colossians 2, 
Hebrews 2 and Revelation 5 refer to death and resurrection. He was a sacrifice, but he also conquered. And he conquered by being a sacrifice who rose from the dead. Colossians 2 says he triumphed over Satan. Hebrews 2, he, Satan had the power of the fear of death. That was Satan's only power was the fear of death. And Jesus conquered it by dying and rising again. Revelation 5 has this wonderful picture of a slain lamb on a throne. And so resurrection ties together the death and resurrection of Jesus as a payment for sin and a conquering of our enemy. Satan's sin, hell, death, and the grave. That's what we celebrate at resurrection. That's the Christian hope. Um, last, two, last thing is, Jesus's, the, God's dispositioning, the kindness of Jesus, his post-resurrection demeanor is just really sweet and tender. Um, when uh, it was Mary who showed up and had an interaction with Jesus. And Jesus said, go and tell the disciples. I have risen. Go tell the disciples and Peter. Now, was he saying that because Peter was, was not a disciple? Uh-uh. He was saying that because if anyone needed to hear that he rose from the dead... It was especially Peter. He failed miserably. I mean, I yell at my kids sometime in the morning when I'm tired and I feel like trash the rest of the day. I, I look at my wife disrespectfully with a wire and cranky or say something and I feel like, I feel horrible the rest of the day. This was Peter denying his Lord. I mean, he was feeling miserable. And what does Jesus do? I mean, what would I have done? I'd been like, go tell the disciples, especially tell Peter. <laughs> Not Jesus. Go tell the disciples I've risen from the dead. And if anyone needs to hear it, man, tell Peter first. I mean, I need to see Jesus doing that to Peter because it makes me hopeful that he'll do that to me. And for you. I mean, that's, that's post-resurrection hope. is isn't just that you'll live past death but that God's disposition to you is tender like that. And then what does he do um, later on at the other appearances? There's three appearances that happen. There's two appearances that happen before Thomas. One was with Mary. So what happens was Jesus accommodates to his people, basically whatever they need. And it's really tender also. Mary, all she needed, it said that uh, he said, Mary, it's me. All she needed to hear was his voice. And, she, and her response was, it is you. This is great. And then the next group was the disciples. And what did they need? They needed to hear him and see him. And they heard him speak, and then they saw him, and they went, it is you. And so he accommodates to them. And then Thomas says, I need to hear him, see him, and touch him. And Jesus goes, okay. Here. He doesn't get annoyed. Again, he's not, he's not like me as a parent who's like, how about because I told you so? Why do you want to? Because I told you so. He doesn't, I rose from the dead. Is it me telling you and being here enough? No. Jesus goes, is that what you need, Thomas? Go for it. Thomas doesn't even do it. He's like, my Lord and my God. Ooh. One of the best declarations possible from the doubting Thomas. Poor guy gets beat up all the time for being a horrible excuse for a Christian. He's the best example. <laughs> He's the one who had Jesus accommodate to his doubts. And what did that do? Jesus' gracious accommodation sparked his wonderful declaration of faith. That's our story. You bring in those doubts of resurrection. You bring in the doubts of, does Jesus really die for your sins? Did he really... All of that stuff, because he can handle it. Faith and doubt aren't opposites. They're twins that belong together. So with resurrection comes not only the centerpiece theologically, academically, intellectually, but also the good stuff that we really need in our life. So let's stop there and see if we have any questions. It's 7.30, and we have um, 14 minutes to end by 7.44. I know. 
We have, it's actually 729, so we do have 15 minutes for conversation. So what would be helpful to either repeat, unpack, say more about, or question or doubt me on? Yes, sir. Because I can't say everything when I say anything. What, what, what about Acts 1 through 8? Um, it's, the, it's the ascension. And it's yeah. apparent to most dozens of more people. Yep. I, we could, yeah. I'm sorry. I'd include that. Okay. I'll do that next time. Yeah. That's, that would be a great text to go to. Another one. I was just... I wasn't trying to be comprehensive on his post-resurrection appearances. So, 1 Corinthians has a good 500. If we want to add in a few dozen more, I'm great with it. I love, I love ascension because ascension is one of my favorite doctrines because it's, the, it's what we have now. And plenty of people saw him. So I thought that would be great. And it's his last instruction. Yeah. yeah. Ascension would be a gr- another great piece of um, evidence for it. Yes, sir. Yeah. Well, the other thing about robbing a tomb is um, there were Roman guards who had weapons and armor and were, I mean, we're talking about some like fishermen and Roman guards with a huge tomb. So, and the Roman guards um, um, would have come up with a better explanation than getting beat up by some fishermen too. (laughs) Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. First question was including um, Acts one eight um, as additional evidence to the post-resurrection appearances. Um, in addition to First Corinthians, where you have five hundred, there's also Acts one where he ascends and addresses a few people and more evidence. And question: the comment over here was if someone did um, rob the tomb, why? Uh, we talked about, um, well, first, how would they get in there with Roman guards and a big stone? Second, why was everything folded up nice and neat? And, you know, what, it, it, uh, why did they tidy up? <laughs> uh, a burglar that tidied up. Have they validated the Shroud of Turin? The, that they found. I, I, no. I, no. Oh, shroud, was the Shroud of Turin validated? And, uh, and, and the, the Shroud that they said was on Jesus, and, and the answer is no. So you gave us 30 minutes. If you had two minutes to say what you had to say to prove to someone that the resurrection took place, what would you say? I'll do it in 30 seconds. So the question is, I had 30 minutes. What would you do if you had up to two minutes to say about the resurrection? Say that to someone who doesn't believe in the resurrection. Yep. Um, Okay, hey Justin, you believe something crazy. Jesus, someone rose from the dead, and you're banking your whole life on this. You're giving your money to it. You're raising your kids to believe this, and you do and don't do certain things with your life because of this, right? And no one else has ever risen from the dead, right? Except this one guy. And your explanation is a resurrection, not some other thing, right? Yes. Why would you believe that? One, one reason is because it has changed my life which isn't the only, it's not the best evidence, but it is evidence, and it's changed many people's lives. Second, um, the, the Bible is reliable and historical and always ends up proving itself true, and the Bible says that Jesus rose from the dead, and those were written by eyewitnesses who had nothing to gain by that except for death. Three, the only explanations that make sense of the facts of the empty tomb is that he rose from the dead, because all the other hypotheses don't actually make that much sense. And then last, he appeared to over 500 people who could have validated or invalidated that claim. So historically, all of the evidence is pointing toward resurrection, not something else. So not only personally, individually, has it meant, been deeply meaningful for me, 
but uh, intellectually and historically with all the evidence, uh, it seems that we have the mountain of uh, evidence is in the resurrection direction. That's what I would say. So I'd basically say everything I said, just... Well, it also, it also kind of matters on what, what would get someone's attention. My, my favorite, so to whittle down what's the most important for me, for me, what's most convincing is the tomb is empty. So what it means personally for me, that's great, but someone else could tell me, I have Mormons come to my house, and they said, hey, have you read the Book of Mormon? I said, actually, I have. I, com- I, I studied comparative sacred texts. Right? I read the Quran, I've read the Bhagavad Gita, I've read them all. Um, I have read it, and they said, did you get the warm feeling? Like they were completely expecting me to have the warm feeling. And I said, they said, did you get the warm feeling validating that it was true? And I said, I got a feeling that it wasn't true. <laughs> and they went, oh, huh, but you read it. And so that's subjective. And so what it's done for me might not be meaningful. Now, here's the thing. My mom is a master evangelist, okay? I think she dropped out of high school in 10th grade. And she likes telling people about Jesus and hope in Christ. I teach apologetics at a seminary, multiple seminaries, and I apparently am kryptonite for evangelism. (laughs) My mom has the gift. So I love the fact that I have plenty of arguments, and I care deeply. I want people to come to faith. And I actually visited my friend's church. It was a big church. They had 1,500 people every week for 52 weeks. Over a year, they had people coming to faith every Sunday and getting baptized. I was the guest preacher. I ended the streak. <laughs> and I even preached, I preached, I preached an evangelistic sermon. I told my friend, I was like, I can't wait. I want to lead someone to Christ. I love that. It's so fun. And I was like, I'm just going to stand next to you. When someone comes up during the singing, give them to me so I can pray with them. And he's like, I'd love to. This is so exciting. This is great. And I was like, where are they? Where are they? Four services. Four services. Nobody. <laughs> so my mom, my mom, get, I mean, she can say peanut butter and jelly sandwich. She's anointed, and they're going to come to faith. I mean, she can say anything. She, she's like Billy Graham. My mom will say, well, why should you believe in Jesus? He's changed my life. And she can talk about it. She can give a testimony to the evidence of the work of Christ in her life. And that's life-changing. That's not how I argue and make a point. That's just not how it works for me. I, maybe I should change my mind. <laughs> um, but for me, what I'm banking, when I went to my professor and said, what's the pearl of great price? For me, what did it for me was looking at the tomb is empty, no other explanation actually carries water except for resurrection. Resurrection is the best explanation of the fact that the tomb is empty. And so that's what did it for me. That's what I would focus on. And then if the person is always in conversation, if they brought up other, what about this, what about this, then I'd address those. But my, it's empty and you have plenty of reason to believe that it's empty and that he rose from the dead. That's what I would focus on. Good question. Yes, sir, with the weird thing on your neck? Yes. So, um, why, can, why is that essentially irrelevant? I mean, I believe it is. I'm not on your side, but I just, I, why, 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 is, uh, why is that not the fact that dead people don't rise from the dead? Why is that not a part of the argument? Why is scientifically impossible? Why is it? Why is that a part of my argument? No, no, no. Uh, well, science does have something to do with it, and that's why it's a miracle. I mean, the, the fact that dead people don't rise again from the dead, we're not looking at a natural explanation. Um, we're not looking for, there's no explanation that makes sense except a miracle. And, unless he was not really dead, 
But that's, again, that's a natural explanation. And there's no reason to believe that. So the, either he wasn't really dead, because there, there are stories of people, we, we thought people were dead somewhere, and they get buried, and they weren't because they were in a coma, or their breathing was really whatever and, and minimal. Those are naturalistic explanations that the person wasn't really dead. Um, so the fact that Jesus, like he was dead, dead, you know, not, it was it Monty Python. I'm not quite dead yet. That, well, that one, um, he wasn't not quite dead yet. He was dead, dead. Um, by the way, just to it being, uh, presiding Bishop Michael Curry was in the diocese of central Florida. He was here also in the diocese of Florida for the five, uh, 550 year anniversary. And because we're all connected, we had the same 50 year anniversary. He came to the cathedral and preached on Sunday on being witnesses testifying to the resurrection. And he stood in the pulpit and he said, Hey, just so everyone knows, I believed Jesus really died and really rose again, not kind of died and therefore kind of rose again, but he was really dead. The dude was dead. <laughs> And then he was really alive. The dude was alive. And that man, could, I mean, he preached for like 30 minutes, and they're used to like 12. And, uh, and no one wanted him to stop. So it was just, uh, that's why I, I said it flippantly, it's because he was in the back of my head. I mean, he was dead dead. That's, that's actually really helpful to emphasize that we're not claiming that he still lived on somehow. We're, we're claiming a miracle. It underlies, underlines, this is a miracle claim that we're saying. That something that doesn't naturally happen required something supernatural. And so we're saying that God did this. The same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is the same Holy Spirit who resides in you. That's resurrection life stuff. And so it is, it's helpful to say, this doesn't naturally happen. God... Um, um, went against the norm of how the world works and how he set up the world. And so he intervened to um, undo the workings of death and made him alive again by the power of the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the one who brought you to life, resides in you, and empowers you and gives you gifts to serve. So is that, does that get to the question? I just want to make sure I'm answering the question. Um, that you were intending. You got one more minute? <laughs> you mentioned uh, Ehrman and, and the uh, Jewish New Testament scholar? Pinchus Lapid, yes. In your research, uh, either personally or comparatively, have you found anything of a non-biblical nature that you would find reliable to use in the apologetics? Yes. Um, did everyone hear his question? I, I mentioned Bart Ehrman, who is a New Testament critic. New Testament scholar who is a critic of the New Testament reliability and authenticity, and then Pinchus Lapid, who is the Jewish New Testament scholar who believes that Jesus rose from the dead, but says that doesn't prove that he's God, just proves that he was a good prophet who Jesus validated. And then that, your question was, is there any non-biblical um, evidence for resurrection? Yes, his name is Gary Habermas, H-A-B-E-R-M-A-S. He did his doctoral, he, he, he's an apologist whose focus is on resurrection. He debates about resurrection, he writes about resurrection. He did his PhD dissertation on exactly that, saying, you know what? I believe that the Bible is reliable, and I believe that we can use the Bible historically because of what Josephus said, because it's pure, reliable, historical, all the stuff we talked about early on. You know what? I'm not even going to use that. Let's look at extra-biblical. So not using the Bible, what's the other historical evidence from all the other historians that were around that, of what was said? Let's see if we can prove the likelihood of the resurrection not using the Bible. And his whole dissertation is all of that, and I think he was successful. So yes, Habermas is the go-to person on resurrection, but particularly your question. All right. I, am I closing us out? Or are you doing the final prayer, Father Joe? Uh, no, it's great. Thank you so much. All right. Uh, Pleasure. Pleasure. Does anybody ever tell you you look like Nick Offerman? Who's that? Really? I usually get Jeff Gordon. Jeff Gordon. When I wear a hat, when I don't have a beard. Nick Offerman is from um, Parks and Recreation. Oh, yes. <laughs> he's, ha he's a very handsome, manly man. Oh. <laughs>
Yeah, that's right. Yes. Thank you. Hi. Hey, it's been a great series. This is our last one. We are off next Wednesday, cause you, but don't worry. You can come on Thursday and Friday uh, next week. So we got Palm Sunday. We'll start out on the lawn at, uh, in the morning services and then um, at 8 and 1030. And then we've got Maundy Thursday at 630. We do have the, the agape meal for the kids. That starts at 6 o'clock in the Great Hall. And then noon and 630, Good Friday services, 615 a.m., 8 o'clock, 1030 on Easter. God bless you. We'll see you Sunday.